Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can, the best way possible, while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own, because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage, why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in a job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I have no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title. You get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Yossi Taguri, welcome to the show. If you can, please tell us who you are, what do you do, and why do you do it? I'm 46 years old. I'm pretty old. That means I had the chance to see the, the world without internet and everything in between. I had uh, the fortune of starting a few companies, uh, failing a lot with uh, many of them, helping others sometimes succeed, sometimes not. And I still see myself as a student that is still in the early days of my learnings of doing things. And I think I'm, I'm most famous for my how to fuck up speech about what happens when you fail and openly speak about failures and not just because you, you hear about the, the, the exits, right? You don't hear about what's going on with the rest, with the 99% of other companies. So I started sharing that and it became somewhat of, a, of an interesting topic around the world. That's what I'm doing since then. <laughs> to a large extent, Startup Nightmares was born because of that trend, because we realized there's, there's a lot of stories about success, but yeah. companies die quietly in the yeah. dark. And sometimes in the failed companies, the lessons are far more valuable. Yes. And that's what we want to kind of investigate. We want to take a, we want to look at the extreme experiences that people are going through and see what we can, uh, what we can learn out yeah. of them. What was your beginning like? It was what, 25 years ago? As a kid, I made, I made money from hacking games. 
we would take original copies and crack them. We enabled unlimited lives, unlimited ammo, and we would slap this intro, which basically glorified us as hackers. And I had a group of, of, of swappers and crackers and, and a graphic guy and a music guy, you know, hack games and sell them. And we made, we made money. It was uh, snail mail, you know, <laughs> floppy disks. And we used magazines to publish ourselves. And it was, it was cool. So that's the first time. I think the first time that I really started a company, it was in 2010. Many, many years ago. Really started a company, meaning like actually going to the authorities, starting your... Opening your... a company, going to investors, raising money. And it's because I was spending some time in Paris. It was, I believe, January 2010. And it was beautiful. It was the most amazing romantic experience you can imagine. It was snowing. I put my, my luggage in the room and I go for the Louvre, right? The first time in Paris. And just in front of the Louvre, on the left side, I see this amazing patisserie. And I love patisseries. And I, I get in and I take my favorite one, which is a creme schnitt, a milfoy, uh, a Napoleon, a thousand leaf cake, right? This is... For a man at my age, it's like a time machine. Right? <laughs> my, my father used to bring those every Friday. And I, she wraps me the, 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 the cake and I take a bite. And this is the best creme schnitt I've ever had. And I wanted to tell to the whole world that this place has the best creme schnitt ever. I wanted to share. And I couldn't. There wasn't any medium that I could share that. Right? Facebook was not a hit back then. Twitter was at the, at the early stages. A week later, I was back in Tel Aviv and I had Sabarina. Sabarina. Yes, okay. it's a cake. It's a Sabarina. And I take a picture on my iPhone, which I uh, illegally brought from the US. And I tweeted about it. And back then, there was a, a service called TweetPeak. And it had a little counter of how many people saw that image. And that day, 300 people saw that image of the Sabarina. Just think about it in 2020. How much work does it take to actually make 300 people see your picture on Instagram? That's not easy still today. And back then that was amazing. And we looked at it and we said, oh my God, I, I think we have something. And weeks went by and other people started doing the same. They were tagging their food and using a hashtag feed me. Hashtags in 2010. Hashtag in 2010, which was a community thing, right? There wasn't a feature called uh, a hashtag back then. And we looked at it and said, we think we have a startup because how do you make people do something without telling them how to do it, right? It's just by example. They see it. It makes sense. Somehow it sits well. There's a fit, right? And they're doing it again and again and again. And we just wanted to eat... Savarina's. Yes, we just wanted to eat good food. We didn't care about the restaurant. We cared about, you know what? I, I, I'm craving for a, a hamburger, right? Where is the best one? And there's many hamburgers, right? But there's a few that are really, really good. And when you're going to a restaurant, there's many good things. Some are lousy, but I'm not for the restaurant experience. I want a dish, right? And we went on and we... We raised money and we, we could say live the dream, right? Uh, that was the first time that I started something from, from scratch. Startups were not as trendy as they are today. A lot of knowledge that is now common was yeah. still missing back then. 
it felt like there is nothing else we can we could do without time nothing and I had kids I had mortgage right and I didn't I didn't have steady income and I, I went on stage on one of the conferences and there were a lot of investors and as I go off stage I get this text message saying I'll give you fifty thousand dollars for 15 percent. Now, I have never pitched a startup in my life before. I didn't know. Like, but that, that was amazing. Like somebody actually offered me money for an equity for a seven-minute speech, right? But I didn't want to take this guy's money. I was after actually somebody else. And Yossi Vardi offered me $100,000 for 20%. Common shares, right? You never get to hear about it. Common shares. That means we're equals. There's no preference. There's no... We are equals. And uh, we, we didn't have a bank account. It actually took us a few weeks to set up the whole, <laughs> the whole entity and get. But I, and I've never seen so much money in my life in one bank account. Wow. Right? It was crazy. You said two things I want to I uh, spend just a few minutes yeah. on. One is Yossi Vardi. As yeah. this season is recorded in Israel, I'm sure this name will come up a lot. Yeah. So if you can give us a brief overview of who is this Yossi Vardi guy? Why is he important to our story, to your story? Yeah. And then we'll move on to common cool. shares. So Yossi Vardi is considered to be a, a super angel in the Israeli scene or the father of the startup nation in, in a way, in a sense. He is most famous for investing in a young company that his son started called ICQ. Mirabilis is the name of the company and ICQ is the name of the product. It was the early days of instant messaging. They were not the first one to invent an instant messaging, but they were the most successful back then. And he managed to sell the company to AOL for $407 million in cash. That was, I believe, 97 or 98. I believe it was 97 or something. That was a complete game changer for the Israeli scene. $400 million. $407 million in cash. The seven right? is important. The seven is important. Right. $407 million in cash. Now, do you remember Breaking Bad? The show. Yeah, the show. Yeah, the yeah, sixth yeah. season. The first six episodes of the sixth season. There was one scene where Walter White sends two thugs to pick up the money from the warehouse. They open the warehouse. They see a platform and on it, $60 million in cash. Right. And I am absolutely sure that in Hollywood, they made sure that there is $60 million in papers on the, on the platform. So just imagine what is $407 million in cash. And that company did zero income. They actually did make income. Like users started sending uh, checks, mailing checks. We said, we like you so much. Here is my contribution. And they made sure not to uh, deposit it because once you have income, there's another measurement by which they measure the value of the company. And they did, what, did not want to be measured. And they negotiated with AOL. AOL, at start, uh, when starting, uh, offered $200 million. And Yossi said, no. And the, <laughs> the founder said, why did you say no? It's crazy. It's $200 million with four guys with 10 servers in the, in, in the US. Just do it. And he said, no, it's not enough. And they negotiated and they signed off $407 million. What Yossi will not tell you is that a few weeks later, AT&T called and, said, and offered $90 million more to buy the company. Wow. And the investor said to Yossi, that's a lot of money. Maybe we should roll back the deal and do that. And he said, no, 
I shaked hands, $470 million, and that's it, right? And Yossi became very famous for that, right? He started investing in other companies, his own money, by the way. I would say most of his investment were not for him to make money. It was actually taking guys like me with no experience whatsoever, believing that they can learn something out of it. And maybe in one of their future endeavors, they would be able to create a big company. So he gave us $100,000 for 20% common shares. And he knew that we were going to fail. Like I remember talking to him and he said, so how many users do you have? And I said, we have 30,000 users. And he's telling me like, it's not viral, right? I said, you know, Yossi, not everything is viral like ICQ, right? And he was looking at me and smiling quietly, knowing that I have no idea what I'm talking about. And he understood that I needed to fail. And I am so grateful for that experience. And when we closed the company, there's a story behind about, we, we almost sold it to Google and there's a story around it. But when I called him and I said, Yossi, we're, we're closing the company. We still had $50,000 in the bank. And that's around 18 months after we got the 100000 right? We didn't almost spend anything. And he said, you know what? Maybe we should split the money between the, the, the shareholders. And he said, what do you mean? That's your money. I don't want your money. This is not how I'm, I'm planning to make money. And, and he said, you know what? I'm not angry that you spend my money, but do me a favor. Don't go to your comfort zone to work for a big company like Amdox or whatever it is. Start another one. I'll give you money, right? And I am grateful for Yossi for like encouraging me that, you know, closing a company, that's a learning point. That's where you're actually having the time to look back and, and process what you've gone through. And I, most first-time entrepreneurs fail, right? Almost everybody fail. Some are saying, you know what? That's, that's not for me. It's crazy. It's, it doesn't make any sense. I want out. I want out. I will never do another company. And I believe that they're missing the whole point. It's like if you do not fail, you're not exercising those muscles in your brain to understand, to be careful of things, to be sensitive of things, right? And it just takes time. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell in his outlier says you need 10 years of your life to spend on something to become a world class in, in anything. It doesn't matter what. Entrepreneurship is the same. Maybe with another layer of complexity because technology, technologies change, trends change. And while you're you know, working to build your company two, three years, things happen in the background that you may have not had the attention span to, uh, to, to yeah. learn. Yeah. That's why you need to, I think, surround yourself with people that are complimenting yourself, you and, and are maybe more gifted than you. Because as, uh, as you think, as a first-time entrepreneur, you probably think, oh, I have this idea. I'm going to execute it. That's going to be amazing. And then you figure out that 90% of your time is dealing with social uh, things like, oh, this guy just lost his mom. We need to take care of that. Or this guy is sick. Or... She uh, needs some time off or she doesn't make enough money. We need to take care of that. Or there's a new competition and you're not actually building the product that you th you're thinking, oh, I'm going to build it. I'm going to put it out there. They will just come. I'll have complete ownership. 
yes, and I will make all the decisions and I know better than anybody. And you just figure out that you, you know nothing. You actually do not know nothing. You, you need to take super gifted people and let them make the decision instead of you. And you just make sure that they are on the right path and everybody on the same page, right? Just making sure that everybody has a sense of where we're going. The focus, that is the most important thing and the hardest thing. Can you describe what it feels like to, a, to like just close a business? When do you realize I might have to shut this thing down? Way before it's happening. As an entrepreneur, you're probably relentless in trying to fix things. That is something that you need to be aware of or need that ability to look on things, figure out what, what, what's not working right and devise a plan on how to solve it. And at some stage in the life of a company, when you're not making enough money or enough revenues, you become more dependent on, on investors. And everything is, is amazing at start. It's like a honeymoon. They love you. You love them. You have money. They're out of the way. They're not trying. They're just not trying not to interfere. And building something takes a lot of time. And assuming that you took money to prove a point that you can do, you can make it work and, you're, and, and it doesn't work, you need to raise more money, right? Because you're not making any. And then you lose control of the company. And when you lose control of the company, you're not able to steer the, the, the ship of where it needs to go, right? And that's a point where a lot of entrepreneurs lose interest or understand that it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. We cannot make it work. And it's time to move on. So it doesn't come as a surprise. It's building up. The numbers show it, right? And it's how. I think there are, there are a few kinds of people when closing a company. Some that it comes as a surprise to everybody in the company, also to them. And some that simply communicate the situation to the employees. And I think that's the best way of doing that because you're afraid, oh, I'm going to tell them that we're not doing well. They already know, but I'm going to say it out loud and maybe they will leave me. Maybe they will ditch the company. And what happens behind the scenes is actually employees that believe in the in the cause will stay no matter what even at hard times even if you cut salaries if they are part of the mission and they are part of making that decision of of closing or doing whatever it is they will stay with you but it's hard like if you think about it you spend three four years of your life on a company that's sometimes more than 10 percent of your life how many 10% do you have left? <laughs> it's not much, right? But you still have to spend a few years at doing things that would never work in order to become very sensitive of those KPIs that says, oh, we're measuring the wrong thing or that's not a good proxy of where we want to be. And only by failing, you actually understand what to do next. What is the moment Of making the decision it's different with I can tell you about one of the companies that I, I was fortunate to be part of we raised a total of eight million dollars uh, for that company that's that's quite a lot of money we we were we were alive for four years it buys a lot of t-shirts it buys a lot of t-shirts yes 
when we came to raise, we, we tried to make the product works and we work and we were blocked by Apple for so many reasons. We had this amazing way of flattening the world for communication. You could go with your cell phone to the US, put the SIM inside and it would be available on your Israeli number without, no, without telling anybody that that's what happened. You would bas- be basically be able to use your phone lines when you were connected to the internet. And we did all sorts of things back then. And we tried for like six months to approve one of the most amazing apps ever that didn't launch eventually. And the investors go rest, you know, become restless about this company. And they wanted to shift the whole company. They wanted to shift it to enterprise. And I went to one of the investors and I said, please do not invest the money in the next round. The company has no chance to succeed in its current structure. We don't have the right DNA to become an enterprise solution. I would not invest my money. Please do not invest yours. And I remember sitting in the in WeWork in the shared space uh, and, and he didn't care. Like he gave us $2 million. He wanted to invest. He believed where I didn't believe. And I said, if we're going to do it, we must change the DNA of the company. We need to replace some of the core people. That's what it means. Without this, do not invest. And no, they said, don't worry. If you'll run out of money, we'll give you more. I said, why? Why would you give me more? It doesn't make any sense. And, and we failed. And we failed miserably. And we knew a full, almost a full year ahead that we're going to run out of money we're not generating enough revenues. There is no way to generate enough revenues when you're moving from a consumer-based product to an enterprise-based product. Just selling the product takes nine months to 18 months. It depends on what kind of product you have. There's no way you're generating revenues in one year from nothing. Back then, at least in that specific space, it's not to say that you cannot do it. We actually did it later on, but we just knew. We just knew. So the easiest way thing was to actually leave the company and go but we stayed and we tried we honestly tried to make it work and and it didn't work do you think playing hard to get is a good um, strategy with investors because it sounds like it landed you two million dollars it wasn't that tactic that uh that gave us that money it was i think relationship and uh believing in something bigger that can we can happen and having the right technology to do it and it's not enough having the right technology. You need to actually have a good salesperson that can sell. The only reason that investors are, are investing is because they are going to lose the investment if they're not going to do it. So having competition or having uh, a bidding wall on the investment is the best, uh, is, is, is a good course of action, I would say. But it really depends on who you are. If you have done a few exits, people will pull money on you just saying, oh, I'm thinking of opening something new, right? If you're a first-time entrepreneur, you need to be really, really sharp and really know what you're talking about and be able to build a, a good team around you and sell the dream. And even if somebody gives you a term sheet, that just means that you need to go out and get another two or three term sheets and start to choose who am I going to work with? The best course of, action, course of action is actually not raising funds. That's the worst thing you can ever do for your company is raising funds because most people do it at the wrong time 
and the revolution of the company. They're trying to get the product market fit with investors' money. And that is 10 times harder than doing it, at least from my experience, without any money at all. Because when you have product market fit, when you have the signal, when you have the KPIs going in the right direction, you have leverage on the investors. The valuation is different. The kind that, the way that they're treating you is different. Think about Cloudinary, for instance. Cloudinary is a unicorn by now, right? They bootstart the company by doing projects on the side and then iterating on the product until they had a fit. They started making money without taking any money for anybody and they become profitable, right? At one point, they basically got the money on their terms, right? Which to relieve some tension, you know, you, you're working for a few years, you want to cash out some of it to relieve some uh, uh, tense for the, for the employees. And it's amazing, right? They're a super successful company because they can still make their own decisions and it's their baby, and they know how to make money. They don't need to finance the company with outside money. They basically, it's on their own terms. So there is another way of doing that. And I strongly believe that when you're taking money at the wrong time, you're basically delaying your death. Because if you cannot sell when you have just a piece of paper, uh, you're probably doing something wrong. I'll give you another example, Gong. Gong, for those of us who don't know, uh, conversational analytics, revenue analytics, they analyze the calls salespeople do with their prospects, and they're able to spot trends, highlight some of them, create correlations between the closing rates and what was said on the call. Basically, super meaningful, super insightful uh, technology, Israeli company, yeah. uh, now growing tremendously. Yes, and they basically had the revenue of hundreds of thousands of dollars before they they raised their first round, which is amazing. That's how you do it. When you have numbers that show you're in the right direction, there isn't an investor that would say no because investors know nothing about the space they invest in. Otherwise, they would go and be entrepreneurs themselves. They know nothing. They might look like they know something, They know nothing. A good investor doesn't stand in your way. A good investor helps you. When you give them something to do, they need to do it. If they do not do it, they're they're bad investors. It's funny how the dynamic changes because in the beginning, it's you sitting there asking for money, trying to prove a point, trying to convince them of your assumptions. And then as soon as it changes and you've secured the investment, if the investors aren't you know, making that mental switch in which they're like, okay, now I am working for you. Yes. You take full advantage of what I can help you with. Connections, insights, uh, yeah. a sounding board. If they don't get that the transition has changed and they're still trying to force themselves on you, on the vision, on the execution, the gap starts growing. Yeah. I remember, you know, I, I've, I've raised... Uh... I've raised many millions of dollars and I can tell you that the best help I got was from the small investors I, I got money from, right? I raised money from Marius Nacht, from Yahal, that was a partner in Magma. He tried to push the, the investment in Magma and couldn't and it didn't happen, but he said, I'm believing in the company so much, I'll put my own money. And I remember sitting at Yahal's house, which has a 
beautiful, beautiful house. And for three hours, he was picking the phone and pitching the company to others. And he says, I'm really sorry that it takes me so much time. And we said, no, thank you. Like, this is amazing. Whatever you need, like, take your time. And he was so helpful. Like, we needed advice. We were just calling him up and he was, he was there for us. I think if you, as an entrepreneur, if you're going into a board meeting and, you're not, and you do not know what would be the end decision by the end of it, then somebody's working you out. Somebody is, uh, you, you're you losing. You're someone else's leverage. Yes. You need to be able to close things before you get into the room all the time. And you need to make them work. You need to give them tasks. You need to, to actually manage them in a way that this is five things I need from you now. Go for it. And you open the board meetings. What's going on with that? What's going on with that? Like a product meeting, right? You manage them like a product person. That's the only way. The more they work, the better they think they made uh, uh, a good decision about investing in your company, right? That that does, of course, it comes with with it needs to come with numbers and execution. But you just—it's not just you just raised money. You potentially hired more employees that are working for free, right? So when you're choosing your investors, is this somebody I want to employ in my company? Yes or not? Right. Otherwise, do you have a, an estimate of how much money you've raised? You probably know it by the by the cent. I think it's north of twenty million in total, plus minus. Uh, Divided over how many companies and how long? It's four companies, ten years. So four companies, ten years. How many ideas for companies do you have in that stretch of time? I do not think in terms of ideas anymore. I do not care about ideas. <laughs> ideas are. It's, it, they don't, it's nothing. An idea is a stupid thing. It's actually trying to think about problems that would be interesting to, of solving. Like if you would solve that problem, that would be, that would truly make money, right? So the hard thing is actually finding an interesting problem to work on. And that is something that I'm always on the lookout. Like this is an entrepreneur sees problems like, oh, this is not optimized. When, why is this so slow? We can make that better. Is that interesting enough? And uh, so it's not ideas. It's actually problems that we're after. And it's very hard to find. It's like looking for diamonds or gold, right? Very, very hard to find a, a big nugget. What makes a problem interesting to solve? It's a simple thing to explain. And I think it's almost obvious how it could make money. Because a good problem, solving a, a hard problem actually creates value. And that value is easily converted into dollars. Did it ever happen to you that you started working on a problem, then you realized, actually, I am way too passionate about it myself, but this passion doesn't seem to be translating anywhere else? After I closed the company, <laughs> I, I like with Feed Me, the, when we took the pictures of food, we were so focused on features and we were the best. We had, we had the competition and we, we, we didn't understand anything about marketing. We didn't understand anything about how to make money out of it. We we're completely blindsided by, by features and, oh, they released this, so we need to do that, right? You probably know that feeling. There was a time period in my life where I helped others uh, build their own companies. And we had this system where you came with a problem, with a suggestion for a solution to a problem, 
and we will build it for you in four weeks. Four weeks. Whatever didn't fit in, eight, in four weeks, we will trim down until it fit four weeks. And constraints is a very important concept when you're building your first uh, lovable product, right? It's SLC, right? Simple, lovable, complete, right? Whatever it does, it needs to do really good. People need to love it. And it should be super simple. You cannot release in four weeks something that is super complex. It needs to be very simple. And one of the things that we did with entrepreneurs is teaching them how to let go of their baby. They were sleeping at night for six months. They were planning, drawing things. And I, they gave me like, uh, you know, drawing boards of super complex things, like 15 screens. Say, because we cannot develop 15 screens in one month, nobody's ever going to see that. Let's focus on how you sign up, how you broadcast your message. How do I project value on the first screen? What is that? That's an animation. That's a story. That's a video. What is that? And from 15 screens, we trimmed it down to four. And after four weeks, it was out. He was able to actually start iterating on something. Somebody slapping you on the side and saying, no, you, that's amazing that you have this dream, but we need to do the first step. And the first step is, is the hardest, right? You cannot take dreams to the bank. You actually need to do the first step. So we educated a lot of other entrepreneurs on how to do that. And by educating somebody else, you learn a lot. So I tend not to make uh, big decisions on product or finance. I just bring other people that are way better and they're convincing me why this is the, the best thing to, and I'm backing them in what they're doing, right? And it's a good advice for any, I would say, entrepreneur and executive is not standing in the way of the amazing people that are surrounding you. I hate to say it, it's a common advice, but it is so freaking oh. hard to do. Yeah, because you need to be slapped a few times until you understand that you cannot feel any void that exists with yourself. You just need to be able to easily communicate the goal and let people figure out how to get there. You cannot both set the goal and tell everybody how to do their job. It doesn't work. You need to figure out the goal. And it's a full-time job just figuring out the goals. And, and that is super hard. Like I'm still, I can tell you, I'm 46. I still learn how to simplify goals or simplify communication. Because when people are super focused, they can achieve anything. It's just, it's just showing them where we need to go. That's it. And it sounds simple, super, super hard. I think it ties back to the investor's money. So it's hard as it is. Now imagine there's an hourglass trickling down counting backwards, and there's someone who's asking, where's my money at the end of it? Does it skew your judgment? Depends on the, on the when in the life cycle of the company you're at and how strong of a product person are you. And when, by product, I mean the personality of the person. Like, can you have a difficult conversation and steer people by looking on data and, and not get feelings? Got An it. investor would say, oh, da, 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 and then you should come up with, with the data. So investors have a lot of weight because they, they brought the money. And when things go south, 
they become even more aggressive and dominant, and it becomes even 10 times harder than that. I have a friend who's a very successful CEO that maybe he would come on the show and tell his story. I think it's, it's an interesting story. Like the investors were absolutely sure that they need to fire him as the CEO of the company. When he was the only one who was making sales, because somebody, one of the advisors of the company, convinced the investors that this guy, it's his first big company. He, would, he doesn't know how to sell. He has no idea what he's doing. And you need to take me as a CEO and replace him, right? This guy tried to take over the company by talking to the investors. He was good friends with the investors. And the investors believed him. And they wanted to basically kick this CEO, this entrepreneur, and bring this guy. And he was facing an impossible situation where, like, how do you prove them that it's wrong, right? I am not a liar. I'm not, uh, and, and, and this guy's trying to take over. And he just, for months, worked with the data and he showed them that even with this guy outside of the company, the company is still growing. And little by little, they started doubting their conversation with that guy. Today, the company is a huge success. And sometimes, even the, if the investors want to do something, it doesn't mean that they know what they're doing. It doesn't mean they want the best for the company. It doesn't mean that it's the good thing to do. Always back yourself with data. Always stay on course. Always communicate like in, a simple, in simple terms. And hope that you took the, the right investors. But if you have leverage, then... I want to ask you about... Um, you've mentioned failure straight off the bat. Like, like you're speaking about it forever. Like it's a legitimate part of, yeah. uh, of doing business. Uh, which it is. It's just not a conversation that happens very, very often. How did failing influence your identity, your confidence especially in a world that glorifies those entrepreneurs who have figured it out and yeah. nailed it. If in the past I was trying to sell a huge dream where we'll make, you know, those, all those Excel spreadsheets that goes up regardless the hockey of stick. the hockey stick without, regardless of performance, regardless of competition, regardless of market changes. I now value one thing and only one thing, and that's what I'm selling. It's the ability to generate revenues. If you're not generating revenues, it doesn't matter what you do. And if you do generate revenues, it also doesn't matter what you do. So the only thing that I care about is generating revenues, nothing else. If you can live one year without a salary as an entrepreneur and you're able to get into revenue six months, I guarantee you people will pour money on you. So from all my learnings, I learned that a business that doesn't generate revenues, regardless of what your, your investors want you to do, right? Investors do not want you to generate revenues in the first two, three rounds. They want to buy more equity cheaply. That's the only thing. Their model says we need to have 25% of this company when we exit, right? 20%, 25% depends on the, on the VC. Otherwise, their model doesn't work. The only way that they get to 20% is they, when they're buying a lot of equity when it's cheap. 
right? If you're going to raise $100 million and they can't chip in, they're going to be diluted. That doesn't work by the... It's the only thing that gives you real leverage. And if that business doesn't generate revenues after six months, you probably aren't, aren't solving a, a, an, an interesting problem or your sales cycle is too long. You don't know how to shorten it or you don't know how to do shortcuts. Um, and it's not interesting. It's not interesting. You need to survive. Figure it out. And when you're having money for, in the bank from investors, that's numbing your instincts. Oh, I have money. It's okay. That doesn't work. We'll try something else. No. If that doesn't work, we will die. That's the only thing that you need to be faced. And money in the bank really numbs you about it. This is the, my, my biggest learning is that strive for revenues as fast as possible. And I can tell you as an entrepreneur that started SaaS companies that eventually did revenues, we were scared to death from asking the, for first dollars. We were, we were looking on the numbers and we had a product that, that the users were using every day, a few times a day. And it's like, think about Gmail. If I take Gmail from you and say, Gmail becomes $100 uh, uh, a year for you, right? They would have a, an insane conversion rate. Why? It's not a nice to have tool. It's a must. This is how I'm doing my work, right? And we had a tool like that. And I remember like talking to the first customer and saying, we're switching the on switch for payments. You have to pay. And they say, no, we're not going to pay you. We worked so hard to help you guys build the product. And so you're, you're abusing us. I said, I, I thank you for that, but you need to start paying. And they said, you know what? Let me get back to you in a few months. I said, no, you can see this as a 30-day notice and I will help you get off our platform and go on to any other platform that you want. But in 30 days, it's out. I need your decision. The day after they paid, the first dollar is the hardest one ever. They paid. Why did they pay? It's not because they were locked in. It's because it gave them value. And that value equals money. And they were willing to pay for that. And it's super hard to, to do that for the first time. Later on, it became super easy. It became super, super easy. Because we knew how to communicate the value in another way. Not just, you know, we're going to save you time, blah, blah, blah. No. It actually, you're going to make a lot more money in your business by using this tool and this is how you're doing it. And it just worked. And you start, you know, piling up money. And once you understand that this is what your company does, is creating that value, you shift the whole sales. You start to recruit, you know, sales organizations that you didn't have before. And you start to optimize for revenues and not optimize for eyeballs that are, I don't know, using your app. It doesn't make sense. So. I think that is transformative in an entrepreneur's life. Yes. Uh, finally, you get validated for your belief in that product, in that whatever. Uh, it's a beautiful moment. And then everything falls into place, right? Marketing money that converts into acquisition in some way starts to make money. We are looking on real KPIs and not imaginary ones. It completely transforms the way that the company works, right? You suddenly have more salespeople than software engineers, which is amazing. If I see a company that has 90% engineers, I, oh, that's a problem. <laughs> Who's going to sell it? Because selling is also uh, a kind of a machine that you need to kickstart. It's not that easy. I want to 
spend a few minutes on the team. And not the team as in the first hires, we can go into that too, but the founding team, your counterparts, your sparring partners, your confidants, yeah. those people who you are in the trenches with, um, the ones that can veto you, the one that knows what buttons to push to, push to, to piss you off. Where do you find them? How do you qualify them? And any tips about relationship management with co-founders that you have? It's one of the, it's even harder than raising money. In uh, starting a startup, the easiest thing is raising the money, right? Everything else is much harder, like executing, finding partners and such. I go with a specific group of people for a very long time. And, you know, you pick up people that you, you have good vibes and you complete each other in a way that I would walk under any of them at any given point in time. I don't mind. Like I've been a CEO, I've been a CTO. I don't mind about my role. Like uh, if there's somebody that is better or wants to take that responsibility, which is the shittiest position ever with becoming a CEO, then go after it. The way I'm doing it is with people I don't have uh, a history with, I try to create a situation where it's make or break, where... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. People are able to, you, you basically clash with, with people in a way that it's make or break. You create crisis out of, it doesn't matter what. You, 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 you find something. And you want to see if ego comes into play. Who tries to pull rank or experience? How do they handle that conflict? 
because when you go into the war after you raise the money or before you raise the money, it doesn't matter. There's so many crises going on and there's so many factors that would tr- or, 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 or things that would try to take you apart as a founding team. And you need to make absolute, make, sh- make absolutely be sure that you have their back and they have yours. Otherwise, that's the most fragile thing. That's the most riskiest thing that you can, you don't want to deal with. You don't want to deal with uh, breaking apart the founding team during a crisis. And by the way, a good, good investors actually try to break you during then, try to see how strong you are or what are the strengths or what are you missing as a group of people. That has a lot of weight in making the decision to invest money in a, in a group of company. And by the way, I've, sit, I've, I've sat in many, many rooms where investors wanted my advice on this group of people, on their technical skills, on their combination of talents, right? And what I'm doing with those, with, with those teams is like I create conflicts in the room where I'm, I'm going after the CEO and I say, why are you telling him what to do? He is the CTO. He should, you should not make decisions about technology. Why are you making that? And, and then they sometimes start to fight in the room with the investor. And, you know, you do not have a team. It's a small thing. Wow. It's a simple thing. If you can't get along with your founders, with your team at the roughest time, you probably don't have. Or if you're worried about it at night, or I need to replace. And by the way, sometimes you need to replace founders. And it's also hard. Were you ever at a position where your, uh, your role in the company was threatened by someone external, like an investor or a board? Yes, I was willing to, say, put the keys on the table, right? And, and go and, and I'm willing to do it at any given time in a company that I'm working for because I want the company to succeed. I am a shareholder. I want to, it's, do you want to be king or do you want to be rich, right? Yeah. I am always willing to give my position for somebody else. Actually, in the last company, I offered my co-founder to take my place because I thought and I still believe that he would do a far better job than I do. And he said, no, I don't, I don't want your headache. Don't, don't. And it's not that, not that easy. So other than solving interesting problems, what keeps you going? Because, you know, You've been in, in it for, for quite a while. Yeah. It changed. It didn't get any easier. It doesn't get easier. No, it's, it's some, some things get easier, but some, or maybe not easier, simpler. You, you suddenly understand the mechanics of creating or building a company and the dynamics between people, which is the most important thing, and how to activate people by setting a clear goal. I remember... Uh, you telling a story about uh, having an investment pulled at the very last minute. At one point, we, we raised, I think it was, I don't know, two and a half million dollars to start with. And obviously, we didn't have any revenues and we needed more money. We were running out of money. And we went to our investors, WPP. And WPP is a huge conglomerate in the world. They have hundreds of companies under them. And they said, we want more money, right? That's what you're doing. You're going to your existing investors. And they said, you know what? We have a better idea. Instead of investing more money, we will buy you. We see synergy with Compete.com, with our advertising business in, in newspapers and radio, and, and that would be amazing. It would help us 
measure everything. And um, for six months, there were negotiations going on. At the end of it, we signed the deal. They flew us to the U.S., uh, business class, with limousines waiting for us and the whole the 11-star uh, checklist experience. 11-star experience. <laughs> um, you know, first-class tickets to see uh, Robin Williams on the, day, like, on the same day. We, it was fully booked. They picked up the phone. I need four tickets. They got us the tickets. We took us to amazing restaurants in the U.S., like flew us all around, chose the company. And a month later, they rolled back the deal. What changed? It turns out that one of the people that were supposed to manage us renegotiated his contract with the company. And maybe, I don't know, that's from rumors. So I do not have the definite answer. And he maybe become too bullish about his position. And they basically cut him off and cut his everything under him, like the whole sub-organization. And we were <laughs> part of that sub-organization. Wow. So even before we joined, they basically shut us down. And yeah. it had nothing to do with the technology? No, the... Nothing, nothing. It was, it, it was, we, we didn't even start, like, we just found a new office. We started recruiting people. We, 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 we didn't even uh, start to integrate with the company. There was nothing. And I'm telling you, I was in the room signing. I have a signed document and I have it on video where the whole organization is welcoming us and, and you know, wow. roll back the deal. And we had nothing, by the way. We were four months at that stage without salaries. It was a shitty situation to be in. Did you already have a family back then? Did I you... had two kids and a mortgage, and yeah. Two kids and a mortgage running four months, no salary. No salary, and we're sitting in a, in a hummus place in Tel Aviv and my, with my wife and my father-in-law, and she's just here, Shlomo and Doron. <laughs> Best hummus in this Best part of the city. Best hummus in the, in, the, in, the, in the Milky Way, and my wife started to cry. Wow. And automatically, my father-in-law looks at me and says, what did you do? You made my girl cry. Yes. You made my baby cry. What did you do? And I said, we don't have money. We, we have nothing. I, couldn't, I went to the ATM to take, you know, 50 shekels, $10, and there's nothing. And this is the worst. Mentally, it's the worst position to be in. You feel worthless. You feel that's the worst feeling you can ever feel in doesn't matter how much your mom loves you. I highly recommend feeling that feeling at least once. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not coming for money as a, as a kid. We grew up pretty rough, actually. We didn't have anything, almost anything. And I remember knocking on the doors where people that wanted their money, the authorities, in Hebrew, I don't know how to say it. The guys who come and, uh, and uh, repossess your property when yes. you're running out of money. Yes, or Tricity Company coming to collect their money and we're in the room quiet and everybody's quiet so they won't know that we're in the house and cutting off electricity because we couldn't pay, right? When you don't have nothing, anything, then it becomes a goal to get out of it never go to that situation again. Like for me, it's death. Like the fact that I would not be able to provide, it sounds easy, right? It's simple. 
But if you are coming for money, you do not understand what it means. Having nothing or having no hope of anything, it's, it doesn't compute. It doesn't, you, it, you're not wired to understand it. I think we're, we're lucky enough that we're living in, in an age where you don't need anything behind, besides a laptop and internet connection to make millions of money. Of dollars, right? You, you, it, it's you. Besides the will and the talent, you don't need anything. You don't need education. Education means nothing. You can go online and learn anything. That's amazing. That's amazing. And people still go, oh, should I register for that school? Oh, the, the other day there was in a Facebook in an, in an entrepreneurs group. What book should I learn to become a better entrepreneur? And I said. What the fuck are you talking about? Just go and fucking do it. Just do it. There's no book in the world that can teach you. Maybe if you do a company or two and you fail and then you read the, the book, it would make sense. <laughs> Otherwise, stop wasting your time. Just fucking do it. And, and that's an amazing time to live in. Would you recommend your kids to go into entrepreneurship And experience that how would you stand as a bystander and see them going through that I tell them not do not optimize their profession based on how much money they will make I, I tell them out front you are not getting any of our money we are in the how do you call this society like a uh, fact the children FTC <laughs> or, uh, you know I, I'm, 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 I'm like I'm going to spend every dime I have to I'm, when I'm going out, I'm going to go out and leave nothing There's behind. no inheritance left. Nothing. You're going to have to build your own wealth. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. You need to take care of your, of your, of your, of your own. It's, it's like, that's what I'm, I'm injecting with them. There's, they don't have the sense of, they do not know how to feel they, they have nothing, right? They can afford a lot that I couldn't. And I, I just thought, th- thought about it yesterday, how lucky they are that they never feel hungry, that they don't feel awkward coming and asking for money. Like I've never asked my, my parents for money because I knew that they don't have. I walked from the age of 13 washing dishes every day so I could have some money. money to buy something i've never asked my and even when they gave me i didn't take it because i knew it comes on the expense of something else and my kids don't have don't have any clue of that they feel completely comfortable of wasting hundreds of shekels every week every kid and i have four of them and they're taking loans between them and paying interest and they they don't know how to feel poor On one side of it, I'm happy I can provide that experience for them. On the other, how hungry will they be? How ambitious or how passionate they will be on creating something? But there's, you know, not until all entrepreneurs are coming from nothing. Some of them are coming for money and still they're very driven. My wish for them is actually to be happy, no matter what they do, if they become happy. artists that and become poor and still happy awesome go for it like don't optimize for money 
Yossi, this has been fascinating. I think we've covered the topics that were, I think, important for, uh, for me and for our listeners to, uh, to tap into. Is there anything that we didn't speak about that you feel is critical for people to hear and know these days? I think my, my best advice for any, anybody who's a CEO of a company is, is not just surround yourself internally in the company with people that are complimenting you, but also have an external group of similar people like you in that very lonely position as a CEO and have somebody to talk to. Because then you will figure out that you're not alone in that swamp of, of feeling drowning every day. You didn't invent any of the challenges that you're facing. And it happens to everybody. And some, sometimes just having a soundboard or having somebody to speak with that understands you, even if he doesn't offer any advice, but just be able to know that he understands is very, very, very helpful. As a CEO, you could be speaking in front of tens of people, but not feel heard or not be able to say what's really on your mind because you have a role in that group of people to lead them, to be there for them. And you need someone in your corner. Yeah, you need somebody to back you up, to hug you when it's, when it's hard. And I'm lucky to have this, this group around me where, you know, I was sometimes I was, I panicked and, you know, the, Let's, let's think about it for a second. What's happened here? And really help you work it out because everybody breaks. Everybody is panicking at some point in their lives. Everybody is depressed at some point of the, in their lives, right? It's just another point in this amazing graph of creating something out of nothing, of becoming an artist, right? Because it wasn't great when he started. He became great by trying to better than... Maybe Beethoven was great. <laughs> Once in a million, you get a Beethoven. Yeah. The rest, open startups. Excellent. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 